Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Welcome to The Ancients, a new podcast dedicated to all things, well, ancient. I'm Tristan Hughes, and in each episode I'll be chatting with a world-leading historian or archaeologist about our distant past. The art, the architecture, the battles, the larger-than-life personalities, events that have helped shape the world we live in today. From Neolithic Britain to the fall of Rome, from the Assyrians to Alexander the Great. Today, I'm going to be joined by Alistair Blanchard. He is a professor in ancient history at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. And today's topic, it seems rather timely for the moment. Yes, that's right. We are going to be talking plague, but plague ancient style. And in particular, we're going back to 430 BC and the most prominent city-state in the Aegean. This is the Plague of Athens. You're going to love it. Enjoy. Alistair Blanchard, it's great to have you on the show. Hello there. Greetings from Australia. Now, we are talking about, it seems pretty timely for the moment, the Great Plague of Athens, or just the Plague of Athens. And this was a remarkable event. It brought one of the most powerful city-states of its time to its knees. Yes, an extraordinary event, really. Uh, you know, a plague which comes out of nowhere uh, within the space of a year. Probably up to 25% of the population of Athens is dead. Uh, extraordinary uh, kind of event. What is the state of Athens just before the plague breaks out? Right. Well, Athens is on a war footing at this point. So the great uh, conflict between Athens and Sparta, the, the Peloponnesian War, has just kicked off. So this is all happening within the second year of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, so Athens and Sparta have come into conflict. Um, and importantly, Athens has made a strategic decision, a decision which strategically makes a lot of sense, but as we'll see, has tragic consequences. Namely, it's decided to retreat behind its walls at this point. So all the people who lived in the countryside of Athens at this stage are now living in the city and they're 
cross, you know, they're crushed together, jostling cheek by jowl, uh, trying to find accommodation wherever they can. The Athenian population at the moment, was most of it located outside the city of Athens? Yes, yeah, so Athens is quite an urban city, uh, but even still, it, although it's quite urban, it does have a very significant countryside population. So Athens uh, had at least you know, 12 important uh, countryside townships, uh, as well as lots of numeral, numerous villages as well. So th- there's you know, a huge uh, number of population that is actually living in the countryside when war is declared. And uh, Athens faces this problem when war is declared, which is that Athens is fantastic as a military force in terms of fighting on the sea. It has a navy that is um, unsurpassed throughout the Aegean. However, it's fighting against a, a, a city-state, Sparta, which is the preeminent force for fighting on land. And so Athens has this problem. How can it shift the battle onto the sea? And in order to do that, it decides it mustn't engage with Sparta on the land, and it needs to retreat behind its city walls so that the sea then becomes the battleground. I mean, logistically, this seems uh, like quite a remarkable task to achieve. How long does it take to gather all of the Athenian citizens from around the countryside and bring them inside these the Athenian walls? Look, it, it seems an amazing movement of population. And even today, we marvel at the logistics involved. It's also not awfully clear whether everyone did move inside the walls. There's some suggestion that, in fact, a lot of people remain outside in the countryside. But, uh, but certainly a significant percentage of the population does move to the city, particularly that population which is on the western side of Attica, the side that will be uh, most in uh, line when the uh, Spartan forces and their allies uh, invade from the west. So um, certainly all of western Attica, uh, as well as uh, a large amounts of people from the north, also move into, move into the city. It, it's an extraordinary logistic, uh, logistic operation. And who is the mastermind behind this strategy? Well, the mastermind behind it is the the Athenian leading statesman at the time, a man by the name of Pericles, who was one of the important democratic politicians at this period. Uh, Thucydides, our main historian of this uh, period, is a huge fan of Pericles. So he writes in his uh, History of the Peloponnesian War, you know, about the virtues of Pericles, uh, the foresightedness of Pericles, and also the tremendous sway that Pericles has with the people. He says, you know, in name, you know, the city was a democracy, but in practice, it was actually the rule of one man, and that man was Pericles. So, So he's immensely popular with the people. Yes, and he'd been popular for a while. Uh, He'd been a popular general uh, as well as politician. And uh, together with uh, another popular politician, Ephialtes, they had been very important in increasingly making Athens democratic, breaking down the power structures of the old elites uh, and increasingly giving power to the people. So Pericles is a really important figure. He's also the mastermind behind the extraordinary building program we see on the Acropolis. So things like the Propylaea, the Parthenon, all the grand buildings that we associate uh, with Athens today were really driven by Pericles and uh, his policies. So he's a a remarkable figure. He's the, the figure that makes Athens Athens. And it's his decision then. He he is the mastermind behind the strategy of bringing everyone in behind these long walls. But 
there are some unforeseen consequences to these actions. Yes, well, I, and you know, it's it's not a long-term strategy. It's quite a clever short-term strategy to bring people behind the walls. People often wonder how long did Pericles imagine he could keep the population contained uh, within the city. But certainly, it's a clever move at the start. But from a you know virological, epidemiological perspective, it's possibly the worst move you can possibly make to have you know thousands of people all crammed into the city with poor sanitation. Remember of course, that there's no such thing as proper plumbing at this period, uh, so that it really has extraordinary, terrible conditions. Do you think Athens was already overcrowded before this new influx of citizens came within its walls? Well, it's always a bit hard to tell. If you ask the, the, the elite writers, they always think there are far too many people in Athens. Uh, they always think that Athens is a, a city, and they, in fact, they describe Athens as a city in fever, they're already thinking of Athens as a sick city. Uh, so to, from so from our kind of elite writer's perspective, they think there are too many people in Athens. And that's certainly the case that Athens is larger than any other Greek city in the, in the world at this point. So normally you imagine, you know, a city to have possibly between 1,000, 2,000 citizens or so. Athens has at least 25,000. So it's you know, 10 times, you know, the size of your kind of average city. Even the sort of great sort of cities of Corinth, which, you know, we imagine some eight, 10,000 maybe citizens, you know, it's twice the size of that. It's, you know, it's four times the size of its nearest rivals, Megara. I mean, so, so it's just, it's an enormous city in comparison to, uh, to all the other cities uh, to start off with. Does Thucydides, does he give this idea that there was this overwhelming sense that, yeah, this sounds like a good idea? Look, uh, what Thucydides uh, describes is, in fact, actually a lot of resentment. Uh, there are there are a lot of uh, quite angry farmers who aren't particularly happy about moving in behind the walls. Uh, and indeed, actually, there does seem to be quite a lot of popular resentment to this decision to move into the uh, city. Uh, the comic playwright Aristophanes, for example, uh, talks about how the farmers are particularly unimpressed by this move and how they miss their farms in the countryside. So there's, I think, a lot of, as you would expect, a lot of resentment. Uh, to uh, to what's happening, they're, they're actually right not to not to want to go because within the space of a year we have this sudden outbreak of disease, uh, and uh, this disease comes according to Thucydides um, from from Africa. So there's a disease which uh, starts, he says, in Ethiopia. It then moves down the Nile to. Egypt onto Libya, the other great uh, kingdom in uh, North Africa, and then it moves across and it first arrives in Athens in the Piraeus, which is the port of Athens. So it comes across with with people traveling, as indeed as we know with the uh, uh, disease today, it's the it's travelers that are the uh, the primary vectors of disease. So at this time, you mentioned Athens is maritime empire. So Athens has got a. Its port is the main place for travel across the Mediterranean. Look, its port is one of the great destinations of the world. In the, in the port of Athens, you could find goods from the Levant, from Egypt, uh, from you know, far away Libya, 
you could find them from Sicily, Spain. I mean, all of the all of the world comes to Athens. So Athens is this amazing uh, commercial center, and it's a mixing of people. It's, it's extraordinary. The press, the port of Athens, is this amazing cosmopolitan place where dozens of kind of religions are worshipped. We know that there's worship to, for example, Isis occurring uh, in uh, the Piraeus. Um, foreign goddesses like Bendis come along. So it's this amazing cosmopolitan place where Egyptian perfume sellers uh, jostle with uh, wild Scythians to uh, sell goods. It's, it's an extraordinary kind of marketplace. So it should make no surprise, really, that this is where what Thucydides says is where the plague starts to break out in Athens. Yes, and and this plague, which he says um, starts in Ethiopia, goes to Egypt, Libya, and then arrives in uh, in the port of Athens. And then once it's in the port of Athens, uh, it uh, goes from the port, and the port was a separate, uh, essentially a sort of separate community from the main city of Athens, but it was joined by these long walls. Uh, now, these walls normally provided a point of separation between the Piraeus uh, and uh, the uh, main centre of Athens. But of course, when Pericles fills the city with people, where do they go? Well, they fill the, the vacant spaces. And one of the big vacant spaces is the long walls. So you have this, as it were, kind of line of bodies that links both the Piraeus all the way through uh, to the centre of Athens. God, that's... A, a quite a terrifying distressing image so you have like this this connection as it were between the harbor and the main city yes a, yes a line of refugees finding yes. space to live yeah absolutely absolutely and we get these extraordinary descriptions of, of life in, in the long walls in these communities uh you know living in essentially you know makeshift tents that sort of thing and so I'm guessing the, the disease spreads, as soon as it hits the Piraeus, it spreads pretty quickly to the main city. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, within the space of a few days, it's already uh, made it to the main city. Uh, and a few days? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really quick. It's really quick. Uh, and, uh, and then Athens, essentially, all of Athens uh, has, to, uh, has to deal with, with, with this disease. Was there any kind of ancient equivalent that at least we know of, like of, of quarantine within Athens? Or No, no. They do know that it is trans, uh, transmitted by physical contact uh, because one of the things that Thucydides tells us is that actually one of the tragedies was that once people fell sick, they were abandoned. People didn't visit them. People didn't go and care for them. They were left essentially to deal with their disease by themselves and uh, either, either, you know, recover or tragically die. Uh, so, so they did know that there was sort of physical contact. And indeed, they do have a concept of miasma, this idea of pollution that can move from one person to another. So they do have some notion of, of, of physical contact, but they certainly don't uh, understand you know, what we would you know, call physical distancing or social isolation or any of those sorts of uh, concepts. We have this amazing account of the plague surviving in Thucydides. And Thucydides... He witnessed the plague firsthand, didn't he? Yeah, he suffered from it. Uh, he was, a fact, in fact, a victim. Uh, he recovered from the plague. Uh, and, and so he decides to give his account of the, of the plague. And he gives us this absolutely kind of almost day-by-day -day account of the symptoms 
of the plague. Uh, it's it's, a, it's, a, it's an astonishing piece of writing, um, you know, absolutely extraordinary in terms of the kind of level of observation and the clarity of observation. Uh, and in doing this, of course, Thucydides has an agenda for this because he himself was a man who was suspicious of other kinds of explanations and causes. He's no great believer in the idea of you know, the divine as a kind of agent that causes things, um, which, of course, a lot of people did at this period. You know, a lot of people, when the disease broke out, thought that you know, it was a sign from the gods. Uh, so, so Thucydides is himself a much more rational kind of figure, and he wants to describe the the uh, the symptoms that he that he's suffering. So, there's a kind of rational account uh, of the disease. So, he provides a rational day by day account, and he himself was a survivor of it. It sounds like you can't get many sources better than that. Yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. The ancient world, it really is uh, is hard uh, to do it. And one can, in a sense, understand why Thucydides is keen to give a kind of rational account of the disease because, you know, there is, you know, within uh, the Greek mindset, a, a strong sense that actually these kinds of plagues are sent by the gods, right? That this is a kind of religious problem rather uh, than an epidemiological problem. Uh, so, um, you know, if you think, for example, to the opening of the Iliad, right? When, what does what's the opening of the Iliad? Well, it's the Greek camp in plague, and why is that they're in plague? Because Apollo is shooting arrows, plague arrows, uh, into uh, into the Greek camp. So that idea that the gods, you know, fire plague into you is something that of um, you know Thucydides is kind of battling hard against. And in that regard, then, so what does Thucydides say? What are the first signs? of the plague on a person. Right, so, so Thucydides um, says, look, the first thing that happens to you is you get a fever. Uh, and then you have this extraordinary fever that, that racks your body. You also get uh, redness and inflammation of the eyes. Uh, and then this leads to um, starting to bleed. You start to bleed, particularly from the throat. You have terrible kind of bad breath. Uh, and these are the sort of initial initial symptoms that you face. You then go through sneezing. Often you lose uh, your, your voice. There's coughing and vomiting and, and that kind of thing. So he says it's sort of the disease starts in the head with the eyes and the throat and then moves down into the kind of stomach where you're, and lungs where you're coughing, vomiting. He then says it goes to the skin and you get these kind of pustules or ulcers on the body so that they're, it's so painful, he says, that even to have the lightest kind of linen on you is something that he uh, thinks is just too painful to even have that on you. You're thirsty, he says, you know, the, the thing you're also driven by at the stage is thirst. He said, you know, people were so thirsty they would have thrown themselves down wells if they could. So it's an extraordinary thing. And he said normally, and this, these are the symptoms that normally happen in the first seven to eight days of, uh, of the disease. And he said that most people are dead by this point. So but about after seven to eight days of catching the disease, he said most people are dead. Um, it's only after eight days you then start to go into a recovery phase. But even that recovery phase uh, has some fairly kind of terrible symptoms associated with it. He talks about insomnia, terrible diarrhea. There's also a sense that your circulation is impaired as well. So he talks about the way in which there's you get kind of gangrene on your 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 genitals, your fingers, your toes. Amnesia, memory loss, he said, is often associated with the survivors as well. They can't remember who they are, where they've come from. So it basically it sounds like it takes over 
at one stage or another the whole of your body. Yes, absolutely. That that's uh, that's it's very clear that that's it, that it kind of starts in the head and works all the way uh, all the way through. And 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 he describes, as I say, in extraordinary detail, what happens. Uh, you know, if, pe- if people are interested in the history of plagues, Thucydides, Book Two, Chapters Fifty One to Fifty Three, it gives you the the best description of, of of plague. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Have we got any archaeology evidence that has been discovered that might back up what Thucydides is saying? Look, we, we have a, a, well, uh, we have a lot of evidence to um, to support the, you know, the, the, the evidence of the, of the plague. I mean, in fact, only... Quite recently, so in 1994, we actually discovered, in fact, a plague burial, uh, which we assume comes from this period. We've discovered 240 bodies uh, in a pit with uh, very, you know, the bodies are kind of thrown together. There's not a great deal of care. There's not a high degree of value of grave goods. It looks like it's done in haste. From what we can see, the dating looks absolutely right to the period of the plague. So it looks like, in fact, we have a plague, uh, a plague burial that certainly would con- conform at 240 bodies all piled together in 430. You know, it's hard to think of an explanation that doesn't, uh, doesn't point to the plague for this one. That might be able to help people nowadays figure out what actually caused this Yes, look, look, look. There's been some. There's been some attempts to try and do the archaeology on it. Uh, some people, for example, have looked at the teeth, uh, and there they say, "Well, look, there's some suggestion, perhaps, of salmonella." And if that was the case, they say, "Well, then that might uh, point towards typhoid uh, as a possible 
uh, a possible uh, cause of the plague. Um, however, this is quite heavily disputed. And indeed, there's some suggestion that actually the evidence is not as conclusive as as you'd like. So that there's some problems, I think, with the, the evidence. I mean, over 30 different kinds of suggestions have been made for what the actual plague is. I mean, traditionally, we always thought it was the bubonic plague, but that's now gone out of fashion. Typhus is another good example, a good candidate. Typhoid, as I say, uh, is, a, is one that looks also quite potential. People have pointed to the fact that it comes out of Africa and have wondered whether perhaps it might be one of the sort of hemorrhagic fevers, uh, a bit like Ebola, for example, uh, that, that uh, comes out of Africa. So, so, so there are some suggestions. There's about, as I say, there's been 30 or so suggestions that have uh, been put forward. None of them are quite perfect. And part of the problem is that Thucydides' description is so good that it's hard to get a disease that matches all of the symptoms. So you can get some that match uh, a few of them, particularly people are very attracted by these pustules and ulcers on the body, which seems to support either typhus or typhoid. But uh, the problem is trying to get all of the symptoms together. And indeed, one suggestion is that in fact, actually, and this is apparently very common within uh, plague scenarios, is that because people's bodies are weak, actually, you often find two or three diseases running rampant at the same time. And so it may be the case that what in fact Thucydides is describing is in fact being described uh, suffering from in fact two diseases, and that, and that in fact, the symptoms sort of overlap. And so we need to sort of tease out one group of symptoms from, from another group of symptoms. I mean that, yeah, that that that's interesting because back in in the fifth century BC, was there obviously this plague was unprecedented, but was there like every year did they expect that you know some of the population would die from an illness or another? Look, yes, they're absolutely uh, very familiar. Uh, with plague. And indeed, uh, Thucydides says, you know, up until that year, that, you know, they'd been relatively free from plague. So, so it's something that they're, they're, they're very familiar with. As I say, you know, the Iliad begins with a plague. If you think about tragedy, for example, Oedipus Tyrannus, one of the great tragedies of uh, Athens, begins with the city of Thebes in plague, and they're attempting to solve uh, the, you know, the riddle of why is this plague broken out. So, so plague is something is that they're totally familiar with. Uh, so it's not the case that they've never had anything like this. And indeed, we know that there are lots of religious cults associated with plague. So plague is something that they're familiar with, but they've never seen it on this scale. They've never seen it like this before. Oh, wow. Well, another reason why, it's, why we're all so lucky to be living in this day and age. Yes. Uh. <laughs> yes, yeah. And especially because most of the suggestions are bacterial suggestions. So uh, either uh, typhus or typhoid are, you know, both both bacterium driven, you know, typhus is transmitted through the sort of feces of, of lice. Um, typhoid is a sort of bacterium associated with salmonella and is transmitted from human to human. But both of them are very relatively easy to treat these days. We just don't see them breaking out anymore. Uh, so we're extraordinarily lucky to be living in an age in which these terrible diseases are, are actually relatively easily treatable. Was one group of people more susceptible to it than another? No, and that's what's interesting, is Thucydides says it doesn't matter whether you're young or old, fit or strong, wealthy or poor, this disease does not discriminate, and it's lethal for everyone. And that has a huge 
mental impact on the population. They realize that, that nothing is going to let them uh, escape at age, social status, lifestyle. None of those are going to let you uh, escape the plague. It makes you understand how the mental impact can really be, as you say, if anyone could die from it. Yeah, and Thucydides himself is is uh, observant of this. He says, for example, that you know one of the greatest killers was despair. He said, you know, the real tragedy was the moment you developed the symptoms, you knew what was ahead of you, and you just lost the will to live. And he talks about, in fact, the mental cost uh, that the the disease had. I mean, for Thucydides, uh, what what he sees coming out of the plague is uh, man's kind of worst nature making uh, a manifest itself. I mean, he says, you know, look, you know people quickly realise, you know, why be good? You know, because the good aren't rewarded. Why believe in the gods? Because the gods aren't going to save you. Uh, you know, so, you know, he says, you know, people who do, you know, who did vices in secret now did them openly. No one planned for the future. They just lived for the moment. Uh, law, he says, breaks down uh, because, you know, why obey the laws when uh, the future seems uh, uncertain? So he sees this outbreak of, of immorality of lawlessness, of impiety as a direct product of the of the disease, and uh, he gives examples of you know people just uh, I- ignoring you know their duties to uh, their uh, their parents. Uh, the the fact that the normal burial rites for him aren't observed is a real marker, and uh, it's hard to overstate just how seriously the Greeks take burial. Uh, and that's what makes this you know, plague burial so amazing, right? Uh, you know, 240 bodies all, all piled together. That's not how Greeks do things. Burial for them is super important. It's the greatest duty that a child owes to their parents is to ensure that they give them the proper burial. Indeed, um, if you're standing for high office in Athens, one of the things you're quizzed about is, can you tell us where the tombs of your parents are? I.e., are you a person who can put their hand on their heart and say, yes, I made sure that my parents uh, had a proper burial? If you can't do that, you can't stand for high office. Uh, in in Athens. Um, You take a play like, for example, Sophocles' Antigone, right? A a play whose very central kind of premise is about uh, a woman who stands up to the laws of the state and faces the the tragic fatal consequences of of breaking those laws just so that she can ensure the proper burial of her brother. So burial for the Athenians and for the Greeks in general is a really important thing. So the fact that people are no longer burying people properly, they're violating each other's pyres, they're just you know taking a body and you know borrowing someone's pyre, throwing another body on to the top of someone else's pyre. And of course, that that's a big issue because you know what you're doing there is once you kind of burn the bodies, you're supposed to then retrieve the bones. And of course, if you've thrown a body onto a pyre, well, how do you work out whose bones are whose? Uh, so it's a real it, it's a real insult uh, to someone to throw another body on onto their pyre. It totally throws out all the funerary rituals. So yes, yeah, so, but people are, are just doing this uh, in in this uh, state of lawlessness and anarchy. So this play it really strikes at the heart of several key traditions that the ancient Athenians considered central to their way of living. Yeah, it, it completely changes. Uh, their way of life, at least for the the moment. And of course, the other thing to say is that um, one of the important victims of the plague is Pericles. So the great leader 
of Athens also is one of the victims of this plague. So Athens is without leaders at this point as well. And that's the other uh, important thing to note. When, when, when does Pericles die? Is, that a, is it right at the start of his strategy or is it nearer the end? Yeah, so, so it's within 430. So uh, when the, the plague uh, breaks out in its, uh, in its first, uh, first iteration. It should be said that the, the plague breaks out in 430. Um, it then returns again in 429 and then a few years later in 427, 426. So, so the, the, the plague that uh, affects Athens has about three uh, different outbreaks, but it's the 431 that is the, the really important one. This is all being, oh, not overshadowed, but at the same time that this is going on, Athens is still at war. How do the Spartans react to hearing that their enemy is dealing with this other enemy, as it were? Well, the, the, the Spartans decide very sensibly not to attack at this point. You know, they, they don't want to be anywhere near this plague city. Uh, and so they uh, effectively uh, call an end to their attacks on Athens uh, and retreat back quite sensibly to their own cities. So Athens, at least, is spared having to fight a battle on two fronts. The war will, of course, continue the following, uh, the following summer. But, uh, but uh, yes, the, the plague is, uh, uh, is at least you know, the thing that Athens has to deal with by itself. It doesn't have to worry too much about also fending off a, a, an external of, uh, attack. Does Sparta not become a plague city or Corinth or Thebes or Megara or any of the other prominent city-states, do they all avoid the scourge that hits Athens? Uh, well, as far as we can see, the plague itself does in fact seem to occupy uh, most of bits of the eastern Mediterranean. So it's not just Athens that is you know, dealing with this plague. However, none of the cities seem to suffer it as badly as Athens. And uh, I suspect it really is the conditions of overcrowding that make Athens such a victim uh, of the of the plague in this period, I think it's that overcrowding, as well as the the, the size, the fact that no one is leaving the city, that I think is uh, really crucial. How does this plague affect the Athenian psyche after the plague rescinds, after it starts to diminish? Yes, yeah. So no one, of course, forgets the plague. And indeed, I mean, Thucydides' description of the plague ensures that the plague is memorialised uh, for, for eternity. And indeed, uh, Lucian, in, in fact, he, a text written centuries later, he's a, a Greek writer writing under the, the, the Romans, uh, he talks about how to write history. And in his essay on how to write history, uh, he says, look, everyone, whenever they describe a plague, just goes back to Thucydides and effectively cut and pastes Thucydides' plague, because no one can do a plague a, a, as good as Thucydides. Uh, so we see, in fact, Thucydides' description of the plague becoming the definitive description of what a plague should be. Lucretius also, for example, talks about uh, the plague in Athens. And again, in his description, is very dependent on Thucydides. So Thucydides' description of the plague becomes almost like an instant classic. Uh, and it has this a tremendous literary impact uh, as well as uh, psychological impact. So it's very significant on the history of ancient medicine as well. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Thucydides, when he's describing the symptoms, clearly seems to be influenced by what's happening in contemporary Hippocratic medicine. Uh, so this is a school of medicine that is associated with Hippocrates of Kos, and it's a school of medicine which places a lot of emphasis on description of symptoms and observation. And so 
uh, it uh, is a school of medicine which produces a whole lot of documents which look a lot like actually Thucydides' description of symptoms. So there are, it's a school of medicine which is very interested in observation. It's also a school of medicine which places a lot of emphasis on diet as well as social conditions as well. That is to say, making sure that the air is good, that the water is good, uh, and, and kind of, I suppose, what we'd call sanitation. So uh, so it's a school of medicine which in sense is quite, uh, I suppose we'd call it like public health these days. It's a very sort of public health focused school of medicine. Do you think this plague is significant in the course of the Peloponnesian War? Yeah, look, I, I think it certainly uh, puts Athens on the back foot. Now, Athens will rebound, and it rebounds actually extraordinarily well given uh, the circumstances, and so that within the space of a few years, it's already uh, you know making I think significant you know inroads against the the Spartan forces. But it certainly does put Athens on the the back foot, and it does mean that Athens doesn't plan any major kinds of expeditions really until about 15 years later when it goes to Sicily to uh, have this terrible sort of aborted uh, Sicilian expedition. But really, I think militarily, it does put it on, on the back foot. The extraordinary thing about Athens and the great secret to Athens' success is that it's, an, it's, it's its ability to be able to get its hands on resources uh, and to be able to manipulate those resources. So, so Athens just has resources available to it that no other city has. Attica is an area much larger than any other city would control. It has silver mines. It has plains uh, that produce um, crops. It's also got a fantastic fleet, which allows it to bring in grain from uh, places like the Black Sea. So Athens can lay its hands on resources that no other city can. So, so it can bounce back in a way that no other city can as well. Uh, so uh, its infrastructure and its economy is such uh, that it's you know, ready to return back to business after the plague goes. You would argue that actually the plague in the long term, it doesn't have a huge effect in deciding the Peloponnesian War in Sparta's favour. No, it doesn't. In fact, actually, if you look at the the history of the Peloponnesian War, I mean, it's often broken up into kind of two phases. So the the first phase of the Peloponnesian War we call sort of the Archidamian War. The the second phase we call the Ionian War. And uh, that that first phase, I think most people would call it, you know, a tie, possibly even with advantage to Athens. Uh, so certainly it's not the case that Athens loses the first half of the Peloponnesian War. Indeed, arguably, Athens is the victor of the, the first half. Wow. So comes to plague and still arguably the victor of the war that they're fighting at the same time. Yes, yeah, amazing, uh, uh, amazing. So uh, yes, within the, the, the space of, of, of 10 years or so. Were there any plagues in the period of ancient Greece, of classical Greece, you know, the time of Athens and Sparta and Thebes and that lot, that we know of? that could rival that in scale and in severity to the one that occurred in Athens in 430 BC? No, there's nothing like it. There's a, uh, our, our historical records don't give us anything like the, the plague in Athens. It stands out as something unprecedented. There's nothing like it before. And really, after 4265, there's really nothing like it again. So it stands out as a, a pretty unique kind of event. I mean, thank goodness. I mean, uh, uh, it's hard to imagine a city that could have uh, survived, you know, uh, another serious bout. Alistair, 
it's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely great fun. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.